Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. What's the key to how an artist does what they do? The essence of Sofia Coppola's filmography, and we're going to focus on this American filmmaker today, is hard to pin down. Her movies span genre, tone and aesthetic sensibilities. From the dreamy ethereality of the virgin suicides to the frothy exuberance of Marie Antoinette to Lost in Translation's introspective portrayal of making friends far from home. It might be said that what unites her work is a keen eye for detail and a concern with getting to the heart of a character. As the daughter of Francis Ford Coppola, godfather of American cinema in the 60s and 70s, perhaps becoming a director was written in Sophia's stars. An unsuccessful stint in acting was followed by making music videos, but it's in 1999 with her breakthrough film The Virgin Suicides that she ruptured any notion that she was undeserving of success herself as a director. In the two decades since, her films have touched on everything from the 18th century queen on the eve of the French Revolution to a group of thieves notorious for stealing the property of Paris Hilton. Her most recent film, On the Rocks, paints a charming portrait of a father-daughter relationship struggling in the whirl of modern life. It is all captured in a new book, Sophia Coppola, Forever Young, written by Hannah Strong. Far from just a catalogue of Coppola's oeuvre, the book is as much a love letter to Coppola's work as it is to Hannah's younger self, who found crucial comfort in those films as a teenager. And Hannah joins us now to talk about just that book and just that filmmaker. Hannah, it's wonderful to have you in the Monocle 24 studios again, hot off the heels of your star turn talking about Red Rocket. Um, you're here to talk about a much more personal project, your portrait of Sofia Coppola, subtitled Forever Young. Now this we're at pains to point out, is a big book about <laughs> a fantastic artist. So we better kick off first things first. I was touched to read in the introduction about what Sofia Coppola has meant to you and what she meant to you as a young woman and as a filmmaker and all the rest of it. But I want to come to that second. I want to perhaps ask about Sofia Coppola. Can you paint a picture of Sofia Coppola's kind of world and her background and her family? and her Hollywood, perhaps, as we as we kick off. So Sophia is the only daughter of Francis Ford Coppola, mm-hmm. of course, the iconic filmmaker behind Apocalypse Now and The Godfather and all manner of wonderful films. He doesn't really need an introduction. He doesn't need an introduction. <laughs> He's got big enough feet. But they exactly. are big footsteps to fill. They, and I they think really are. We'll probably get into that, how and whether she's tried to or not tried to or whether people have accused her of it or not or all the rest of it. But she sits in a kind of comfortable upper echelon of, of Hollywood you know, blue blood, I suppose. Yes, she? very much so, yeah. yeah. I think that's probably... Something which has been obviously a massive help for her, but kind of a hindrance, because when your father is one of the best filmmakers of all time, you know, how can you possibly live up to that? So Sophia kind of, you know, she was born in the 70s and uh, came of age throughout the 80s and 90s and did a little bit of everything. As I get into in the book, she was a model, she was a fashion designer, she was an actress, as anyone who has seen The Godfather Part 3 will remember, she... (laughs) did act you know kind of mileage may vary I thought that you might put italics on one of the words in that <laughs> sentence <laughs> I'm a big fan of her performance in that film but okay. I think that it's one of those things that history has been a lot kinder to it than mm. the contemporary reactions were yeah. and she was very scarred by that so I think we do have in a way the kind of critical mauling she got for her acting uh, to thank for this career she went on to have as a filmmaker 
So after that, she kind of uh, went away and did photography and did various things. And then eventually made her first film, The Virgin Suicides, and that premiered at Cannes, got a very positive response. And the kind of, as they say, the rest is history. She's gone on to have this very... uh, illustrious career as an independent filmmaker. I mentioned your touching introduction to the book and you bring readers along beautifully because obviously Sophia Coppola and her movies have meant something very personal to you. If you don't mind telling us, I mean, it's obviously in the book, but I mean, her lens, her female lens and what she meant to you as a young woman is obviously very important and presumably the genesis for the book in some way. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. I um, for me growing up, as I did in um, the kind of wilds of uh, Yorkshire, very different environment from the places that she puts in her films and very different kind of couldn't be more abstract from the uh, rarefied Coppola world. But for me, I was such a unhappy teenager. I had a lot of problems with depression and anxiety and I spent a lot of time off school. And one of the things I did during that time was watch a lot of films and obviously that's had a massive impact generally on my life. You know, I became a film critic. So, uh, you know, it's <laughs> that worked of, out okay. It works out great. Yeah. yeah. My education. I'm holding this book. It's pretty heavy. I think it worked out okay. Hannah. It did. My education wasn't just in the classroom, it was very much in my living room, in the bedroom, watching yeah. films. Yeah. So, there were lots of filmmakers during that time who I discovered and loved, and many kind of the um, colleagues of her father. Mm. So, you know, it's funny that. Sophia is the one who came along and I watched The Virgin Suicides and I watched Lost in Translation and they were some of the first films that really struck me as understanding what I was going through or feeling like my experiences were kind of being reflected back to me Mm. and that was a kind of a revelation for me. I talk about this in the book but the kind of the bigger stuff, the the actors and the kind of settings are, are incredibly different. But the feelings, the emotions, the, the, the kind of larger themes that these films get to, I think, just really resonated with me. Yeah. And that was so novel to a teenager. So is that the moment, you know, that, that where it sort of clicked, where you talked, you talked about sort of people of her father's generation of filmmakers, these canonical, you know, probably male filmmakers frankly right but seeing something presented by also another young woman getting the female experience and and as you say despite being thousands of miles apart you know getting under your skin to a certain extent yeah absolutely yeah and I think that and this isn't just my experience of being a teenage girl I think it's a universal thing for all teenagers is that you feel very lonely as a teenager and you feel like no one gets you and it's kind of a joke you know teenagers think they're massively misunderstood so to be able to kind of make that connection and feel like someone understands even in a kind of abstract way was so valuable to me. And I think I was kind of amazed to discover that, you know, as I grew up and kind of went off into the world, these films were having the same impact on younger people. And that to me is kind of a testament to her talent that, you know, these films really have endured and they're still selling out screenings the, the world over. So I think it's thrilling to me that I had this opportunity to kind of take such a deep dive into someone who's clearly had such a massive impact on my life. So there's the fact that she's a wonderful female filmmaker. What about the aesthetic of her films? Do they share, and we should say, we should tell our listeners that you've arranged the book in interesting chapters. All the films are obviously present and correct and things, but you've got celebrity and excess. You've got sort of different category, category chapters as well. Amongst all these chapters and across all the movies, is there a Sofia Coppola kind of, is there an aesthetic? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, shared aesthetic. Definitely, I think, and I think this is part of the reason she's been kind of dismissed um, among certain circles and certain types of uh, film critics. I think that the kind of high femininity of her films and this kind of very maximalist aesthetic that she tends to gravitate towards has been kind of seen as a bit frivolous or, you know, kind of all style, no substance in the past. And I think that... That's I something that. I hate that, that of critics of hers. That's something that always really kind of me. got me because yeah. I think, you know, and I think this is something that I've seen change in the kind of time of me starting to watch her films to now is that there's been a much more nuanced approach to female filmmakers and this understanding that just because something is lavish and over the top doesn't mean it can't also have incredible meaning to it. So, you know, there's that kind of incredible production design and costume design which all of her movies kind of have these incredibly intricate details Mm. and she's a filmmaker who is very meticulous and if you speak to any of her collaborators the thing they say is that she knows what she wants but she's incredibly open to collaboration and she gets people that are the best people for that job and that I think is very interesting compared to some of the filmmakers that I've read about or interviewed who have a vision and they see everyone they work with is bringing their vision, you know, to life, yeah. to the ticket. And Sophia is very much more like, oh, here's my idea, but I'd like to hear what you think. And I'd like to kind of make it feel like a collaborative effort, which is, as an aside, what I feel film should be. I think Sophia and Stanley Kubrick <laughs> would have got on, but not have been great work buddies. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And and someone like, there's a wonderful quote from Orson Welles, which I always think of about directing and he said that a director is a field marshal and has to shepherd everyone into mm-hmm. into battle so to speak and I think that listening to interviews with uh, Sophia's collaborators the thing they always say is that she doesn't kind of order everyone around mm-hmm. she's very much kind of uh, a softly softly director and that's not to say she doesn't know what she's doing but I think she does bring this kind of uh, quiet confidence to things yeah. and you know you could say well of course she does she's you know look at who her family are but that's that is that shows real that is confidence it's tough not to film set is a kind of hermetically sealed environment where you are trying to make a creative thing out of lots of different ingredients right you're trying exactly. to make a very complicated cake and <laughs> uh oh this is this is going to be the worst metaphor it's going to run out of steam totally. <laughs> but you're trying to bake a very complicated cake and and yeah that softly softly approach takes quite a lot of guts weirdly i think and i, I, I wonder so. what you thought of her criticisms of her you know sort of saying that that all style, no substance kind of thing. And it's like style is substance. That's what it's, it's a the film. It's a visual thing. It's meant exactly. to look in a certain way. It takes quite a lot of work to get, make it look that way. And the way it looks means something. It's not yeah. a novel. It's a, it's a, it's a film. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And I think that the visual kind of appeal of her films has contributed to their longevity. You mm. know, something like the Virgin Suicides or Marie Antoinette has, I think, found new audiences primarily because the images are so, iconic and you go online you go on any kind of like blogging site it the things you will find are kind of those images of all the beautiful cakes or the girls kind of on the front lawn and that's the thing with the book is that we wanted to kind of highlight 
the fact that she is a very visual filmmaker. She's not, and she has said this by her own admission, she's not a script, you know, a, a dialogue writer. Mm. She doesn't like writing dialogue. But she's a writer. <laughs> I mean, we should also we should also point out that she's a writer, director, and oh, mostly yeah. a producer of her own movies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. she's she does a she, lot. She definitely For does. For people to say yeah. she's sort of a laggard in some ways, bananas, <laughs> right? Especially because. It's my understanding, and it is actually quite hard to find the financial information for her films. But I think that's because they're independent. A lot of them, you know, her, mm. her father's production company produces them. But I, it's my understanding that Sophia's films are primarily funded through her kind of own fundraising, with the exception of Marantinet, which was her kind of foray into the studio system. And part of that was funded by her fashion line, which she did in the nineties, did very well for itself, and. I think that, you know, it is kind of dismissive to say that she's only got somewhere because of who her father is. When you look at the amount of kind of things she's doing and then you look at her kind of her commercial work and you look at her TV work and there's just so many things. And the that music she's promos kind of, and stuff, which is so wonderful. The music videos, yeah. you know, I, it blew my mind to realise that she was behind the White Stripes. I just don't know what to do yeah. with myself video because obviously that was on you know MTV all the time when I was a teenager and I never made that connection. So I totally understand the kind of, I think... It's more important to me than ever that we talk about uh, nepotism within the film industry and kind of make sure that we're understanding why people get the opportunities they do and, you know, kind of keeping one eye on that. But I think Sophia is someone that proves that you have to have a kind of artistic vision. You have to have the talent to back it up. And to me, her body of work has really wrestled with her own feelings of privilege and her own kind of struggle with kind of defining herself as a young woman against this incredibly overbearing like family name yeah yeah it's it's a huge elephant in the room i'm sure right <laughs> we're flicking through the book at the moment if uh, listeners can hear some some pages slapping <laughs> around that's just good old us looking at uh, hannah's lovely book i mean we're looking at some pictures some stills here from marie antoinette and you mentioned the beautiful details the sort of lushness of the this particular production i think there's a shared aesthetic as you said throughout throughout all these movies even something as different seeming as some as a, as a movie which i love which is somewhere mm. which is about the lavishness of Chateau Marmont, the kind of lush dullness of it in a certain <laughs> way, I suppose. But I mean, we, we, we kind of joked about, you know, Sophia and Stanley Kubrick being un, unhappy bedfellows, possibly. But I mean, this has got such a Barry Lyndon vibe oh, as absolutely. well, right? I mean, the lushness of Marion Antoinette. Yeah. That's what I loved. About I talk it. about this in the book as well. And the thing that I really love, well, there's so many things I love about Sophia Coppola, but one of the things that I, during the book, really enjoyed was tracing the path backwards through her films to the films that inspired her mm. and yeah Barry Lyndon was a huge inspiration on Marie Antoinette and Lolita was a huge inspiration for the Virgin Suicides and she is so film literate and you know again that probably comes from having a family of filmmakers and they had, really... the, they had the odd VHS kicking around exactly yeah yeah <laughs> you know I, I believe that that she, well, I know that she shares a birthday with George Lucas and George Lucas is one of her father's very close friends. So, you know, it's when you're growing up at a dinner table with Marlon Brando, you can't really help but like absorb that kind of culture. And we've all been there, Hannah. <laughs> exactly. God, I wish. <laughs> um, so, you know, one of the great joys of her work for me is being able to discover other films through her. And, you know, I don't think I would have watched Barry Lyndon as a teenager if I hadn't kind of thought, oh, that's a film that Sofia Coppola likes. Maybe I'll yeah. like it. And then I obviously did. And to me, she's kind of a gateway drug for any young cinephile because you can 
draw the line so obviously. And when you read interviews with her, she's so willing to kind of say, yes, this inspired me and this inspired me. And she's a bit of a magpie in that she takes all these bits from these other films, but she, the thing she makes from them is so uniquely her. Mm. And I just really enjoy that in any kind of artist's work i love being able to it's like them you know the marvel easter eggs but only this is the kind of <laughs> the highbrow version yeah i like that that's, <laughs> now that's an analogy our listeners can respond to finally you do this really beautifully in the book actually you you as a as a top critic obviously and as a student of her work particularly you you draw these parallels between the kind of i suppose the original the set text mm-hmm. of old movies from the 30s the 50s the 70s and how she's recreated certain scenes and am I right in somewhere when the dad and the daughter kind of are swimming together and looking, making eyes at each other under the swimming pool at the Chateau in Los Angeles? That's a direct kind of quotation from Rumblefish, is it? And things like this. Leaving Las Vegas. Leaving Las Vegas. Yeah, but Rumblefish was the inspiration, I believe, for the main character. She was going for that young Mickey Rourke-esque, young Matt Dillon um, kind of like brooding masculinity figure who's got this deep sadness within him which she I'll say it again we've all we've all been there Um, (laughs) (laughs) it's nice that she kind of explicitly quotes the things that she loves in 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 films and it's homage rather than you know yeah and I think she's incredibly good at kind of giving dues where it's deserved you know I think she considers herself a student of cinema and doesn't think that she kind of knows it all and you know so often throughout history, I think that there's been this perception of the filmmaker as kind of, you know, an enfant t- terrible, <laughs> doing my best moment in right. French there. I said homage <laughs> rather than homage, and you, you're going with... <laughs> so, you can use Wunderkind. Wunderkind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. um, you know, a kind of know-it-all. And I think mm. that Sophia is so kind of willing to admit that she doesn't know it all. And that to me is very refreshing. And I always come out of her films kind of wanting to know more and kind mm. of wanting to go and look up the paintings that she's referencing or the kind of the music that I've heard that I've never heard before. Her use of music is great, isn't it? Oh, I mean, it's, that's the yeah. thing. I mean, she obviously, yeah. as we said, she did pop promos and, and things like this and that wonderful White Stripes video. But the use of music is is great. I mean, I'm th- I'm, we're, we've got the page open on, on <laughs> Marie Antoinette here, but obviously Virgin Suicides. kind of songs she was using on her soundtracks were not necessarily what you would associate with the genre she was working in. Certainly with The Virgin Suicides, I don't think films about teenage girls at the time would have, you know, had this kind of very moody sort of French electro soundtrack. And then obviously uh, Marie Antoinette was the big one where it was kind of unheard of to put all this kind of contemporary and then punk music on top of this historical epic. Again, that's a kind of reference back to Ken Russell and the kind of the iconoclasts of the of a bygone era but yeah, something of the devils something of the devils something of the listomania well. yeah. i think that the kind of cheekiness of it all and the kind of it's not i was going to say irreverent i think yeah irreverent is a fair term to use yeah sense of approaching history which i you know i, I really dig i didn't i talk about this in the book as well i didn't dig it as a teenager i, I took it i was very appalled that you could 
do this to history. I was like, that's not how it was. But I've become less sort of self-serious now and kind of appreciate it for what it is. But yeah, I think there's, a again, a great discovery element with her music. It's Everything is so carefully chosen, but it really feels like you're being handed a mixtape by a friend and you're being kind of instructed to go away and discover these bands. And that, to me, is one of the great joys in her films is this element of having homework when you finish it because you want to understand it and you want to rewatch it and kind of get all the little references and recreate the universe a bit right yeah absolutely and you want to feel like you're sitting on the train and you listen to like all cats are gray or you listen to ceremony and you want to feel like you know kind of cinematic when you're on a train or something (laughs) i like your feelings that's exactly how they they are good and as you're right we're just finally on the soundtrack thing they exist so perfectly as sort of a time capture of that movie and your experience of that movie but then also as a sort of independent art form in their own right very very cool I've opened the book on a spread called Fathers and Daughters not accidentally and you know obviously we've talked about Francis Ford Coppola and and, and Sophia's father Um, but it's a theme throughout her movies as well these sort of in, in, in On the Rocks Bill Murray and Rashida Jones, Stephen Dorff and Elle Fanning, is it, as, as the young, as the daughter. So t- tell us about, a bit about this, why you wanted to do a whole chapter on this, because it's, it's, it's kind of front and centre in her life. It's obviously, I guess, a, th- a theme that runs like the words through a stick of rock in her movies. Um, but why did you single it out for a chapter? I think that, to me, I think I talk about this a little bit in the book, I had a very bad relationship with my father, and there's something about the way that she portrays these relationships between young women and their fathers that I found kind of aspirational for myself, but also I really enjoyed the fact that they are incredibly flawed relationships a lot of the time Mm. and there is a lot of kind of misunderstanding. But deep down there's this kind of desperation to find a common ground and we see this in Somewhere when... It's beautiful in Somewhere, isn't it? They're they're playing the Guitar Hero together or they're, they're swimming in the pool or they go on this amazing holiday to Milan and they sit in bed and eat all the gelato, which is again the direct... She did that in Venice, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. she talks about doing that with her own father when she was about eight or nine, and it just seemed to me like the other kind of chapter headings, you know, innocence and violence and love and loneliness, are kind of more abstract things in a way. Mm. But the fathers and daughters thing to me seems like a very tangible, recurring kind of theme throughout her work. I thought to me it was kind of a interesting way to pair those two films as well which I think are maybe the two films of Sophia's that don't kind of get talked about as much mm-hmm. which is crazy to me because Somewhere is my favourite of her films and I think it's it's you know, such a good film it's brilliant and I think it's, I watched it again went to before speaking to you and it's such a good film it's, it's, so, it's and it's wonderful. so confident to be that quiet I think so it's much so of the quiet time. I believe that the screenplay was about 70 pages which is right. incredibly uncommon for yeah. a Hollywood movie I think they normally run about 120 and so much of that film is silent or you know kind of just background noise and I think that is the relationship a lot of daughters have with their fathers there's a lot of silence there's a lot of kind of miscommunication or just kind of so much conveyed in like a you know a very kind of withering look (laughs) and so to me yeah it was a kind of a fun way to frame those films that felt like it was maybe something that doesn't kind of get discussed as much about her films because I feel like everyone talks about the kind of romance or the loneliness but yeah this seems like a more kind of simmering under the surface thing we mentioned at the top of the interview Hannah the Bill Murray and Rashida Jones in on the rocks that you write beautifully about that in the book and and about how it's sort of a homage to the screwball comedies or the sort of the what they call the sex films about the sex things like the Philadelphia story which is just such a good film 
so tell us about that and how that how, how you've put those two things together these sort of classic classic hollywood movies um i suppose post great depression right the kind of golden age of hollywood in, in certain respects and and yeah. something like on the rocks those films obviously came when we were we i say we when when our forefathers the forebearers were coming out of a period of kind of uh, uncertainty and great upheaval in society and it's very funny to me that on the rocks kind of came out at a similar sort of time for for us where everyone was kind of not really sure what was going on and feeling kind of distant from each other and then this lovely film came along about kind of that desire for closeness not just to your parents but also to your family because obviously Mm. in the film Rashida Jones' character is dealing with a kind of spying uh, on her husband right spying on her husband because <laughs> she thinks he's having an affair which is kind of a classic conceit in a romance it's a caperish thing it is it? Yeah. yeah and lots of those films from the screwball era the kind of golden age of Hollywood were about these kind of comic misunderstandings and there would be some sort of upset and then a kind of crazy scheme to kind of fix it and then all's well that ends well Sophia by her own kind of admission loves those films and said this was kind of her attempt at at doing something like that so it is a kind of a gender meta from mars women are from venus type comedy but it's also just about the kind of learning to live with each other as human beings and yeah. kind of learning how to find a way through difficult relationships and you know she's also someone that i think is incredibly human as a filmmaker and she does make mistakes and i think she's more honest about her mistakes yeah. necessarily than some filmmakers are we didn't we you mentioned lost in translation we kind of beetled around it we got to really talk about it because it it was made for such a little amount of money it made such a lot amount of, it was made such a lot of money and it meant such a lot to so many people it was a film that had that sort of film hadn't been seen for ages on the big screen if ever what effect did that have on you? Because it's sort of, it's the one that everyone knows, I suppose, <laughs> rather than Marie Antoinette and the hugeness of that. What did it mean for you? And what, what, what does it mean as a, as a movie? Yeah, I think it's definitely, I mean, Virgin Suicides had been critically acclaimed, but didn't make that much money at the box office. And then Lost in Translation came along and really, I think, did far better than I think anyone would have ever mm. thought. It was a real example of an independent film just taking the world by storm and and for a lot of people it reintroduced Bill Murray who I think hadn't had been kind of steadily working but most people still thought of him as kind of the guy from Caddyshack or the guy from Groundhog Day this kind of comedic presence but it was the first time in a while that he'd had a chance to do to be kind of sad and lost to be sad and and lost and I think that Scarlett Johansson obviously at the time she's been acting since she was about 11 but this was the film that made her the kind of you know A-list as she is today And I think for me, when I watched it, I was probably about 16 years old. So not far off how old she was when she made the film. And again, the thing that kind of got through to me was this idea of not knowing kind of where you're going in life and having this kind of just general malaise haunting you. (laughs) But that kind of not being permanent and kind of realising that it's not permanent, but also acknowledging it's perfectly fine to feel that way and that you don't have to kind of apologize for not knowing what you're doing with your life Mm. and I think that's still quite a novel concept living in the kind of capitalist world we do it's you know kind of novel to think that you can just take a moment and say like it is perfectly fine that I am a young person or a middle-aged person who doesn't necessarily know what's going on and kind of what they want to do. Come on I'm sitting right here. (laughs) (laughs) And I think as well that element of human connection is something that we saw it in the Virgin Suicides but I think this was really where it took off for Sophia in terms of being one of the filmmakers who is so 
concerned with intimacy on screen and kind of not even always romantic intimacy, but just humans finding connection at a time when they really need it. I mean, for me, on a personal level, it sparked a lifelong obsession with Tokyo. I think when I went there for the first time... It's a perfect place to set the movie. It it, could have been done in Rome, maybe, or something, but it's perfect. Absolutely, yeah. I think that Tokyo, to Americans, to Brits probably, because it is so far away from us, it's it's a 12-hour flight away, it does seem like somewhere that is just a completely different world. And now having been there, I can say, yeah, it does feel like a completely different world. Mm -hmm. But the film, to me feels like it's very reverent of the city and it's clear that Sophia lived there for a year and it's clear that she holds the place in such high esteem and has such an affection for it. I mean, I should say that that wasn't necessarily how the film was interpreted by Japanese critics and there yeah, was some criticism I, around it. I, people can say, oh, what's the moral core of a Sophia Coppola film? Perhaps, I, I hate that criticism, but with that one I was like, eh, is that a little bit... And I know critics who really, on the um, edge yeah, I think there are definitely there are critics who have very valid concerns about her depiction of Japanese culture and whether or not there are things that within the film that are kind of racist or that are just culturally inappropriate. Again, I think this is something that Sophia has kind of held her hands up and said, like, I didn't realise that what I was doing would be interpreted that way or that I should have maybe had more of a a, a wider kind of cultural scan over the script maybe but I think those criticisms also have been very educational for me and it's always great to kind of expand your lens and kind of understand you know but I mean definitely when I went to Japan I, I did get a sense of how that film has kind of impacted yeah, over Yeah, and it's an easy and... place to feel lost because you can't... It it's is. unlikely that you can read the street signs and, yeah. and, and la, 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 la. And you can't... You can go and you can have a cocktail in the in the, in the, <laughs> in the um, Grand Hyatt or the Park Hyatt bar. Yeah. But you might not be able to eavesdrop on your neighbour because oh. you know, so all these <laughs> no. sorts of things. But um, it's, it is wonderful. And again, it was the kind of thing... It, that was the thing that, you know, was the rocket booster, I suppose, for her career. Absolutely. And for all sorts of, all sorts of things as well. We had to address that elephant in the room. <laughs> Hannah, you're so brilliant at talking about it. Obviously, you've written the book on it. It is called Sophia Coppola, Forever Young. Hannah Strong is the author. It's beautifully published, we should say, beautifully bound by Abrams as well. Thank you so much for coming in and talking us through it and congratulations. And also thanks for going there and being talking about the personal element <laughs> of it for you as well. Um, no, not at all. I'm always delighted to talk about Sophia and I hope that people reading the book will kind of get a sense of her but also a sense of her kind of wider abstract meaning within the world. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a must it's a must buy for anyone with half an interest in film. It's a beautiful beautiful thing. Hannah Strong, thank you very much. And that is all we have time for today. Thanks to Hannah Strong, whose book Sophia Coppola Forever Young is published now by Abrams. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chungu, and Steph also edits the show. We'll be back at the same time next week, but until then, from me Robert Pounds Thanks for tuning in.